Good morning, Professor Adler. Thank you so much for participating in this conversation. Um, I know you have a lot to say. You teach in a university in Arkansas. That's right. Uh, university of Arkansas, the main campus in Fayetteville. Yes, that must be a very interesting experience. I'll share with you experience I had. Um, I once testified in a case, in a court case, about an hour out into Arkansas from Memphis. So traveling from Memphis into Arkansas was quite a contrast from all about being Elvis and beer, beer advertisements everywhere, and suddenly I was in a dry county, and my driver was a former seminary student who finally realized it wasn't her calling, uh, and we had a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, so it, it's a different world from the East Coast, that's for sure. Uh, how do you find uh, being a, a Jewish rabbi, a, a Bible scholar, teacher of Hebrew, uh, in, in a place like that? Well, it uh, has a dual aspect. Uh, and I think the positive outweighs the negative. The positive is that people take religion seriously. And I think most of the Christians I meet, even the very conservative ones, seem to maybe subconsciously subscribe to what the Christians call dual covenant theology. Yeah. That is, they believe that not only in the new covenant, uh, which is mediated through Jesus, but the covenant of God with the Jews. And so uh, that makes it easier. You know, on the East Coast, uh, religion is a very private thing. Uh, people don't talk about it. I was just walking my dog yesterday, and... Uh, ran into another dog owner uh, whose dog was really uh, liking my dog, and we started talking, and he said, oh, I'm going to church with my parents, and this is, you know, a young adult, which I wouldn't see on the East Coast. One, one beautiful thing that happened, uh, I, uh, my wife and I uh, adopted two children from Vietnam, and um, our agency, uh, I had a friend who uh, had adopted two children, and I asked him about his agency. He said, oh, it's a great agency. They're right here. It's a married couple. It's not a big organization. But the only thing is you have to promise to raise your kids as Christians. So I talked to Marvin, the husband, and uh, I said to him, well, I know that you can't work with us because we can't promise that promise, but maybe you can recommend another organization. And he said, well, let me talk to my wife, and I'll call you in the morning. And he called me in the morning and said, well, I talked to my wife, and we sat down and prayed about it, and we'd be happy to work with you. And I'm sure they literally sat down and prayed and said, what are we going to do with these Jews? And the answer they got was, have them adopt these two children. So we have our two beautiful children from Vietnam. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that happens here, you know, among people who take religion seriously. And the negative side, sometimes, uh, oh, I had a student once in a course on Judaism, and the uh, subject of his paper was trying to prove that Judaism is a false religion, um, which is not really the kind of paper you hope for in a course on Judaism. And even if you don't believe in Judaism as a legitimate religion, as some Christians don't, you know, you want to explore what it is and not just try to refute it. But in my experience, the positive really has outweighed the negative. 
Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's certainly a challenging environment. Um, what do you teach? I mean, you you you're a professor of philosophy, I think Fulbright, uh, and uh, have written some very important work. I've done some important work. Uh, I read yes, some. I, uh, I'm a member of the philosophy department. I specialize in early modern philosophy. Uh, I also teach uh, philosophy of law and social political philosophy. Uh, but we have a uh, small uh, and growing Jewish studies program, which I was one of the founders of. So uh, I teach a few Jewish studies courses uh, in between the philosophy. So I teach Introduction to Judaism. I teach a survey of Jewish languages. I teach contemporary Jewish thought and courses like that. How? So you already told me something about the variety of students you get. I imagine they're mostly non-Jewish and probably mostly Christians because they're interested in this topic. Um, how do you find teaching to this group? Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you, the university has, I believe now, 27,000 students. And our best estimate is about 60 of them are Jewish. So it's a very, very small percentage, as is the same in the state. We have 3 million people and uh, estimate about 2,000 Jews out of 3 million people. So it's a very, very small percentage. Uh, and the students, uh, they vary. Some of them are uh, just, I'd say, scholars of religion. They want to know about every religion. Uh, some of them uh, want to know about the Jewish roots of Christianity. Uh, some of them, some few of them are Jewish students who want to know more about uh, Judaism. Um, some of them uh, just are uh, intellectually curious and they want to know all kinds of things. So. It's a variety, but most of them are, in fact, Christian. Uh, and unlike the student I mentioned, most of them are respectful and interested. And I try to uh, not put down the differences, but play up the commonalities between Judaism and other religions. Um, you know, we're both uh, biblically-based religions, although we take the Bible differently. Uh, one thing I tell my students uh, that uh, you know, Christians tend to read the Hebrew Bible, what they call the Old Testament, in a very Christianized way. And I say, well, look, if you start with the assumption that the Hebrew Bible is part one of a two-part series, it's rational to read uh, the first part as an anticipation of the second part. But if you don't start with that assumption, uh, it looks really different, and that's how it looks to us. Yeah, Rabbi Tovia Singer likes to say that why did God create Mormons so the Christians know how the Jews feel? <laughs> uh, that's very good. That's very good. Yes. So how uh, does uh, how does the Bible figure in it? I mean, do you actually teach the Bible, and how do you have to adjust to be able to teach that subject? I know you you reach, you teach biblical Hebrew. Uh, I do. So how does, the, I mean, there are probably verses that you have to, to, um, to show, to show how the words they used and, and, and syntax and all that. Um, how does that, all that sensibility play out in actually teaching the Bible, since it's a Bible-based podcast? Uh, 
sometimes in the past I've been able to do four semesters and, and their people actually uh, begin to translate uh, the easier parts of, of the Tanakh um, and get a first-hand experience with it. Uh, a lot of it is about uh, learning the, the way Hebrew works, which is different than English. Uh, some of the words just have no equivalent. Of course, that's true for any two languages, uh, but especially crucial in, in Hebrew. Uh, one thing that I've always been impressed by is what uh, is called usually by the German name, named Gottesdienstkritik, or uh, in English, uh, form criticism, which is a kind of meaningless term, but uh, it was developed by a German scholar, Hermann Gunkel. And Gunkel said, look, you have to understand uh, the kind of literature that people thought they were writing and the setting in which it was used. Uh, so, to read the psalm, uh, uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Uh, we know that this was recited by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem got literally on the top of a hill. And if you've uh, gone to Jerusalem on a bus, you can see the bus has to downshift and struggle to get up. And imagine someone standing at the bottom, and maybe someone not in the best of physical shape, they're going to look up and say, boy, look at that hill. Who's going to help me get up there? And uh, if you read it step by step, it says, uh, God will not let your foot slip, literally, that you're trying to get up, and it might be slippery, and you need help. And uh, God is your shade at the right hand. The right, uh, Yamin, also means south. And this is where the hot, boiling sun comes down in a Mediterranean climate. And you really need shade. I, I remember I once spent a summer on a kibbutz, and I was picking olives, and they warned us, don't let, don't let yourself pick on the sunny side of the tree, because the sun will strike you. And I was picking olives, and the sun moved around as the morning advanced, and I was suddenly on the sunny side, and I started to feel faint. And uh, it says, God, well, God, you're coming and going now and forever. That is, your way up and your way down, and the next time also. And the sense of presence that you get when you understand that really is something that you might not get. And you could get in a translation also, but most people, I never thought of it until I uh, uh, read about Google. And then I was yeah. like, wow, this is like really amazing. Um, and also, uh, the 23rd Psalm, um, this is another example of uh, what he calls uh, the uh, setting, uh, the Zitzim Leben, the life setting of it. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, and most of us are not shepherds. I actually have a friend I grew up with who went to high school who was a shepherd, professional shepherd. But uh, the... The phrase by phrase, you look at it, uh, the Yarbitseni, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, Yarbitseni, it doesn't say Yashkiveni, it says Yarbitseni. What is Yarbitseni? Uh, animals, four-legged animals, uh, can be seated upright on all fours in a relaxed position. Right. And, and this is not going to sleep, which is Yashkiveni, but to make me relax. Uh, and no desha. The desha is tender grass, just nice to eat, uh, still waters, 
gives you a, a sheep. And so you need still water so you can drink. Uh, and so it's very, very specific towards shepherdry, which most of us don't understand. And when you understand that, it becomes much more vivid. And you can see, you know, the metaphor becomes alive the way it wouldn't if you just read it from the King James translation. Um, of course, once you understand these things, you can read them in the King James translation also. Oh, uh, he restores my soul. This is Yeshua uh, Nashi. Uh, that is, Nashi has the secondary uh, meaning of thirst. So he quenches my thirst, uh, which is what a good shepherd will do. So uh, those things really bring uh, the Tanakh alive, I mean, to Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I, I think that this, this kind of sensibility is slowly eroding the documentary hypothesis, personally, I think, because the more you understand about the background, how people spoke, how people composed, no punctuation, so you need to repeat things sometimes, and, and the art of looking from different perspectives in the era where written texts were rare and very precious. You know, you expected to really focus and really study it and go backwards and forwards and read it backwards and read it forwards and from the middle. And, you know, the arrangement was, it's not a, the great uh, 19th century uh, novel, uh, which is usually chronological. I think all that is, leads us to really new perceptions uh, on, on a micro scale and on the macro scale as well. It's all very interesting. Um, I want to shift just a little bit. I apologize if there's some noise. The garbage truck is outside. <laughs> and, well, uh, and I want uh, my garbage picked up today. So. I, I, I need it picked up. So uh, this should be, uh, this should end. Or oh, is it the cutting grass? I don't know. Something is there. All right. I hope that we can still hear each other and the listeners can also. So I, I'd like to go back a little bit and we've talked about the Robert Alter's new translation which was fairly recently uh, completed um, and uh, we looked at Hill Halkin's uh, review and his uh, criticism and uh, responses to his criticism and his response to the responses this was in commentary and in the moment magazine and um, I, I wonder what your feeling is about all that. Uh, to, to summarize, I mean, I think you can say that his criticism had to do with the fact that uh, Alter's translation prioritizes readability and idiomatic expression in English over the fidelity to the Hebrew text, which in a religious document is really supremely important and also perhaps does not give us much weight to traditional interpretations, which are, after all, what is, is our inheritance in terms of biblical text uh, and uh, uh, how we uh, understand in the Jewish way. And when you have uh, legal documents, that is crucial, of course, uh, in how you understand what the text is actually saying. Well, what's your feeling about uh, his points? Do you have any points of your own? Uh, my point is that no single translation could do everything that you needed to do. Uh, when I lead the uh, Torah study or Bible study, uh, we get out a variety of translations and, and look at them differently. 
so there's the Everett Fox translation, which uh, I think you might be familiar with, which tries to uh, reproduce in English as much as you can the Hebrew words. And you end up with something uh, that's sometimes very awkward and sometimes it seems like not even quite English. Uh, but this is the most transparent way of looking at it, and, and you get something that no other translation can give you. Um, the part of the difference is what is the Bible? Uh, and again, it goes back to what, what Gunkel has talked about. What genre are we looking at? And uh, one, uh, this is not Gunkel himself, but one of Gunkel's uh, supporters said, well, look, uh, consider how you might describe a house. Uh, whether you are a real estate agent or an architect or a person describing the house that they grew up in, maybe with some nostalgia. And all of those would be good descriptions of the house, but for very different purposes and in very different ways. And so the uh, Alters uh, sees the Bible as primary, primarily a literary text. And he's producing a literary English translation. Uh, some of his acquaintance with Hebrew, well, it might seem like he could uh, have a greater acquaintance with it. There have been uh, things pointed out. Uh, but if you want a, a work of literature in the tradition of English literature, that's, he's producing that. Mm. Uh, and that can sometimes bring things alive in a different way uh, than the more literal translations can. But you shouldn't pretend that it is uh, not a literary translation. I mean, we can imagine a parallel. Suppose someone was looking at the Constitution of the United States, which is a legal document, but also it is a patriotic document. And so someone looking at it from a patriotic point of view might say, you know, this is the a uh, document that creates our freedom as American citizens, and the legalist would look at it clause by clause and point by point and argue how they work with each other, and as you pointed out, they would see it through the eyes of legal tradition, uh, so that uh, if you just read it without looking at anything else, you might be surprised by some of the interpretations. Uh, but that's very necessary. And so I think it depends a lot on what you want it to do. If you want it to do what Alter wants it to do, to make it a work of literature, uh, I think he's done that. So would you... Uh, and I think that's one aspect of it. But uh, you shouldn't pretend that that is the whole of it. It's like someone who sees the Constitution as an inspirational document, which it is. Uh, but it is also a working legal document, and to protect those freedoms, we have to read it word by word, clause by clause, and look at the uh, rulings of judges who have ruled on it, which, if I can say so, is in a way a parallel to the uh, oral Torah. Uh, and if you ignore that, then you're going to get a very distorted view of it. So that's what I would say about Alter. Uh, you know, some reviewers have pointed out his... Uh, missing certain Hebrew idioms, which I think is, is the case, uh, and that you know is, is a mark against it. But uh, you know, if you if you uh, 
I can't remember who said this, but uh, for people who like that kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that they like. Uh, and so I think it captures one aspect. That's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, so uh, I think the word literary in Bible study has two meanings. One is examination of literary techniques, which attenuates some of the strangest of the work and some of what might appear to be composed of different documents. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, but uh, you are talking about really literature. You're talking about something that is supposed to affect your heart, that you don't pay too much attention to specific details. You kind of get uplifted by the uh, rich uh, sound of it. Um, and you're saying, if I correctly understand, that that's what Alter's goal is, is to... You, you get up not necessarily so educated, especially in the legal section, but you get up with the sonorous feeling of uplift and, 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 and um, kind of exalted phrase, um, like you were reading Latin, you know. I mean, if you translate it into simple English, it doesn't sound the same. Something like right. that. And I would say, you know, it's, he's working in a literary tradition of English language literature. Uh, and so he, and in a way, the, the Bible, I mean, the, the King James Bible is a landmark of English language literature. And it is that independent of the fact that the King James translators didn't uh, know a lot of what we now know about the Hebrew language. I mean, one amazing thing uh, is that you think a dead language, you wouldn't learn anything new, but since 1611, when the King James translators did their work, uh, up to the present, we've learned a lot about biblical Hebrew, um, and uh, so we're able to produce a much more accurate translation now, um, and yet the King James Bible is a landmark of English literature, so it has a life of its own, uh, and I wouldn't uh, ignore it, but I wouldn't say this is a very accurate translation. I'd say it's, it's a work of English literature uh, that has its roots in uh, something Hebrew that's rather different. Yeah, unfortunately, the Jews were expelled from England at that time, so they really couldn't consult anybody. Uh, yes. I like I like yeah. this example. I shall suffer no bull from your house. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, uh, and. Um, you know, uh, there were efforts to Christianize it. And one thing uh, in support of contemporary translations, that is, it's, if you look at a 21st century translation of the Bible, it's much harder to tell the religious background of who translated it. If you look at the 19th century, it's pretty clear, you know, it says, uh, Behold, uh, a virgin uh, will conceive and bear a son. Um, the Christianized view, if you look at that, it's, uh, it's something very different. Um, actually, that's one passage that I make sure to discuss with my uh, Christian students. If you look at that passage in and of itself, uh, it says, uh, Behold, the young woman uh, is pregnant, and she will bear a son. Uh, and this is the prophet talking to the king, saying, look, you don't know it, but I'm a prophet. I know that your wife is pregnant now, yeah. and she will have a son, and when that happens, you will realize that I'm a true prophet, and I know these things. 
Uh, and as a literary work, if you put it together with the New Testament, then, you know, you can read back into it that kind of foreshadowing, but that's not at all what it says. Right, yeah, I think most modern Christian translations concede that point. I think MacArthur's they translation... Do. They do. MacArthur's translation is the only one that does not. Um, and, uh, of course, the word, as you pointed out, in Proverbs, I think, chapter 23, does mean uh, young woman, and also right. in other contexts. Uh, this is talking about Isaiah 7, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, there are... Understanding the language, understanding the Near Eastern background... And being open to the cultural kind of reception of the uh, of how people lived uh, really allows you to see the biases of uh, the the old documentary hypothesis, whatever is left of it at this time and age, uh, and you begin to understand. Uh, for example, not having punctuation requires you to say, "God spoke to Moses." Well, all right. that all that means is that paragraph, you know, things like that. Um, you you can the, a lot of the strangeness of the text um, becomes surpassable, and I think what we need is that kind of a translation. Rabbi Ari Kaplan tried to do that. He translated the five books of Moses, um, but th- you know that's another topic for another time, uh, and it uh, suffers yeah. from some deficiencies as well. There have been so many translations. I have a very old book by Alexander Marx, who was a librarian at Jewish Theological Seminary, on translations. And it's just amazing how many translations there are. Because it's a very, very influential book. You know, our whole Western culture is based on it, even though that's yes. a fact that we're forgetting now. And has oh, yeah, yeah. influenced other cultures tremendously as well. Uh, so uh, I find it's a very worthy topic, whether you believe it or not, whichever side you're coming from, uh, just to understand ourselves, our society. And then it has a lot of wisdom. If you're a believer, it's divinely re- revealed wisdom that certainly warrants very deep consideration. Translation is a way to approach it, you know, and I think your point is well taken. Uh, understand what each translation is, what the assumptions are, and read it as a kind of a commentary, but this one is real literature. That's what you're saying, right? Yes. And uh, one thing that relates to what you mentioned, the lack of punctuation, uh, there's a phenomenon that's called by the Latin name inclusio. Mm -hmm. That is, at the beginning, at the end of a story, uh, the Tanakh will include a summary of the story. Uh, And so at the end of the Song of the Sea, there is a final statement uh, and, you know, the God drowned uh, the Egyptians in the sea. And you kind of wonder what's going on there. But they couldn't punctuate to tell the beginning and the end of the story, so they had to do that. And if you understand that, it's basically saying, here's where the story ends. And um, in a way, it's like, it reminds me of the old-fashioned telegrams. We don't really send telegrams much anymore. But there was no punctuation, and so they had to use the word stop. Right. Uh, and in retrospect, it sounds kind of uh, strange, almost humorous, that you might say, uh, if I'm writing a telegram to you, you know, arriving in Muncie on Monday, stop. You know, what's the stop? <laughs> right. well, it's the end of that sentence. And so they had to do things that were kind of parallel to that to make it readable uh, in the absence of punctuation. Um, 
and mostly in the absence even of, of separation of words. So, um, yeah, yeah um, I mean, there is a, a very different kind of text than you would uh, expect now. Yeah, you really uh, need even to approach now, it. I mean, this is not uh, biblical, but uh, the expression in later Hebrew literature, Adkan uh, know, you know, thus far the words of so and so. That's just a end quotation mark, which, you know, when translating something like that, that's how I translate it. Uh, but since they didn't have uh, quotation marks, they had to use that device. Yeah, it reminds me of legal documents that say further the affiant says not. Right. Yes. Well, the reason That's there is that you like shouldn't. That. Yeah, the reason there is, I think, that you shouldn't write something in in front of the above the signature that wasn't right. there when the signature was there. So that kind of limits that. But there are all these techniques. It's it's a fascinating topic. And uh, I think that's that's where we need to go to really understand the text. Uh, but I think there is there is a role for what you're saying as well, which is if if you're just commencing your study, if you don't have the Hebrew skills, and if you want to be uplifted, because again the Bible speaks to the heart as much, if not more, than to the mind. Uh, so some some translation like this might give you this basic subconscious um, sense of what, what it's about, and then you can learn more. I think that would be... And one, one example of that really is like that. The inscription on the Liberty Bell, uh, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof. Um, and, I mean, that's wonderful uplift. If you look at the contemporary translation, it says, declare a release. You know, what's a release? I mean, it is a kind of property settlement in which people can, you know, have their debts canceled and they return to their property. And it's a very legal, uh, legalistic um, interpretation. But it doesn't give you the uplift of proclaim liberty throughout the land, even though it is yeah. that is not telling you what's there. Um, so I certainly wouldn't um, suggest changing the inscription on the Liberty Bell because it's philologically inaccurate. It, it, uh, yeah. It's one of our uplifting statements uh, about the foundation of this country. So, yeah, definitely. I sometimes uh, see, I mean, that's the difference in the Latin Mass, I guess, and the vernacular Mass, um, or between the kind of... Uh, um, the, what is it called? Uh, Duolingo, I think... Uh, um, when the language has fancier words uh, and simpler words, like English does, uh, right. and the the tone, the tone colors the understanding of individual words and closes, and the tone is quite different if you you say, let's say, uh, mm, let's say you say a holiday or a feast day or something like yes. that, and and I see it also in. Uh, I see sometimes young people studying Hasidus, especially Chabad Hasidus, which is a very deals with all this com wonderful and very elevated concepts, and they read it, and I know they're not getting it. <laughs> I, I I see they're not getting it, but after pronouncing all these words, uh, even if you don't quite understand, they they stand up and and they feel elevated and cleansed, 
and there is room for that as well. You know, it's it's uh, it has. A, and I think what happened. The growth of King James translators just didn't understand the real significance of the word Torah, which is translated liberty, and later scholars really understood it. And you know, one thing I want to hand the scholars, you know, the people learned a lot. Actually, one amazing thing. This was. Um, discovered only in the 19th century, or actually rediscovered only in the 19th century, and in English only in the 20th. Uh, the binyanim in Hebrew uh, had different functions in biblical Hebrew than they do in modern Hebrew. And one hypothesis, which I really accept, is the difference between uh, Hephil and Piel. Hephil is uh, starting a process and PL is completing it. Uh, and uh, one 19th century Hebrew writer said the Hebrew is uh, Gorem and the PL is Gomer. So what does this mean? Uh, if you read the King James translation of uh, David and Goliath, it looks like David killed Goliath twice. First with a stone and then he cuts off his head. Right. And it reminds me of you know, the Wizard of Oz is that statement, uh, she is not only merely dead, she's really quite clearly dead. How dead does Goliath have to be? Uh, but if you look at it, uh, what it says is, uh, he dealt him a fatal blow with a stone and finished him off with a sword. And if you didn't know that, you would think, well, here's documentary hypothesis. There were two stories, one with a stone, the other with a sword, and someone combined them. But if you understand the nuances of those binyanim, it makes perfect sense the way it is. Um, that's a wonderful that's example. something uh, that uh, I think it's uh, in the story called Otzahat Filot that uh, it presents that uh, interpretation. And then later, um, I, I'm, I'm blanking out the name. Uh, Waltke, yes, Waltke and O'Connor discuss it in their uh, English language book on biblical Hebrew. Uh, and, you know, what happens, uh, and this happens in English too, actually one uh, interesting example in English, uh, can you hold a census using statistical techniques? So, and this might seem a little bit uh, around the barn, but it, it's not. Suppose you want to find out how many fish there are in a pond without draining the pond and killing the fish. What you do is you uh, catch a hundred fish and mark them with some harmless dye and release them. Then you go back and catch a hundred more. And if you see that among your hundred only ten are marked, you can estimate that there were a thousand fish in the pond. Okay, so can we use something like that in the census? It says in the Constitution, the census must constitute an actual enumeration. And so they said actual enumeration means you count people one by one in person. But in the 18th century, actual had the meaning up-to-date. And so all they're saying is you have to con conduct an up-to-date enumeration. But uh, the misunderstanding of the word in terms of time really gave rise to a false interpretation. And the work of recovering the biblical meaning of words, and although Hebrew wasn't a everyday spoken language, it, it continued to be used and evolve over centuries and centuries. And so it's very hard 
Um, Absolutely. And you know, even the, the Talmud says, you know, the language of the Tanakh is one thing, the language of the rabbis is another thing. Right. Uh, and so that says the program, and we have to carry that out, and it's not, it's not very easy. But uh, amazing progress has been made. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's only part of, I would say, revolution. You know, what you quoted is an important statement. I think it's in Bavi Mitzia, Kufla Mithei, maybe Gimel. But it's only part of it. I mean, the, the, the form criticism that you mentioned, the consideration of diglossia that we discussed, the very careful attention to the rules of the language and syntax, and even more importantly, um, Context. Uh, the medieval commentators tended to focus on explanation of words and phrases. Uh, I heard Rabbi David Forman speak, and he made the point that in every generation we have a different and unique understanding. And I think what's evolving in this generation is a different understanding than in the medieval time, and interestingly, even in the ancient times. It's interesting that there were no commentaries in the ancient times. Uh, there were retellings, kind of right. like what you said before, the Book of Jubilees, etc. Every generation has its own way of approaching this very deep, very complex, very meaningful text. And um, part of what excites me about these times is um, that we're in the midst of a revolution, and, and I don't see people recognizing it quite that much. So it's wonderful. Yeah. Can you can you tell us about you know how you came to be where you are now in, in terms of the religious journey? And, oh gosh, oh, uh, of course. And then and then, and then and then where are you going? One, where are we going? Uh, if someone offers you a job teaching philosophy, first you say yes, then you say where. <laughs> uh, so that's what happened. Uh, the other story is um, God needs. God knew I needed to be in a place without many Jews so I could realize how important uh, Jewish life was to me. Because if you live in a big Jewish community, you can just drift along. Uh, you know, not, not deny and not affirm. Uh, but here, you have to really take a stand. And so that's, uh, that's what I needed. Um, and that is uh, basically what happened. Um, I'll tell you... A couple of things that happened. Uh, I was, I think I'd been here about a year or two, and I was walking down the street near the center of town, and this guy came up to me, a tall, gangly guy, wearing something that looked like a kippah made by, homemade kippah made by someone who didn't quite know how to make it. And he came up to me and said, with a strong Missouri twang, Are you Jewish? And usually I would say, sure, I'm Jewish, but, you know, it, it was so strange. You know, usually it's not the first thing they ask. But he looked okay, so I said, yes, I'm Jewish. And then he said, do you know Hebrew? And I said, yes, I know Hebrew uh, pretty well. And he said, would you teach me Hebrew? And I said, now, wait a minute, let's sit down and talk about this. So we sat down on a park bench, and it turned out he was a member of a Christian group uh, called the Assembly of the Name of God. Only they actually say the four-letter name, which we Jews don't say. Uh, and they are maybe the opposite of, of, of Jews for Jesus. They're Christians for both. They uh, follow their own quirky version of halakha. 
uh, take it very seriously. And he wanted to learn Hebrew so he could read the Tanakh himself and not have to rely on translations. So I said, look, all right, I would teach a class of people. He wouldn't teach one person. And he asked me what books we would use and, you know, all kinds of facts. So I told him what books uh, and gave him my phone number. And I thought he'd go away and I'd never hear from him again. But a week and a half later, he called me up and he said, well, I got some people together and I bought all them books and we're ready to start studying, studying, not studying. And so I got some people from the show and we started learning Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. And we continued for four years. And you probably know, and, and not as a put down, but a lot of classes in the synagogue, people come and they learn in a kind of not very focused way. They take something away, but they don't have serious, hard knowledge. But these people, they really wanted to learn. And so by the end of the time, uh, we were translating the easier of the hearing psalms. And this uh, led on to something else. Oh, by the way, the, the people, the assembly of the name of God, uh, one example of their quirky halakha, uh, it says uh, that the uh, you got the Omer beginning uh, after the Sabbath, Shabbat. And we interpret Shabbat here as meaning the day of the feast, the Yom Tov. But they say, oh no, Shabbat is Shabbat. So for that year, Shabbat might be Wednesday. And they say, well, all of them will be resting on Wednesday when everyone else, the Jewish people, are observing Shabbat on Shabbat. And the next year might be Thursday or Friday. So right. they do that. Um, so not long after that, Mark Corey, who was then the director of the humanities program at the university, said, well, we want biblical Hebrew taught at the university. And there's this minister who says he can teach it. I want you, uh, Jacob Adler, to talk to this minister and see if he's really capable of teaching biblical Hebrew. And I talked to this minister who was well-intentioned, but his knowledge of biblical Hebrew was just far from sufficient to be a teacher of biblical Hebrew. So I told Mark Corey, and he said, well, I don't know. Do you know anyone who could teach it? And I just smiled and said, well, I could, because I've been teaching it in this context in the synagogue. And so I started teaching biblical Hebrew at the University of Arkansas. Uh, and, you know, in retrospect, uh, I think, you know, in, in rather a literal sense, uh, this guy who came up to me on the street was uh, one of God's uh, malachim, who came with a mission to uh, get me connected back with Yiddishkeit. Um, and, but I was still an agnostic. I didn't really believe in God, at least not, I didn't know that I did, I didn't deny it. And sometime after that, I was, I used to go to show because I wanted to hang out with the Jewish people, uh, not because I believed in literally what was happening there. But uh, one Shabbat, the rabbi couldn't come. We had a rabbi who came from St. Joseph, Missouri once a month. He couldn't come. I think he was not feeling well. And there was no one who could read from the Sefer Torah except me. And I was talking about reigning, just reading the words. And I had a kind of inner dilemma because I thought, well, I'm an agnostic. I shouldn't be the one to be reading.
on the other hand, I thought this is terrible that Jews assembled uh, to hear words of Torah should not be able to hear them. So I fought with myself back and forth, and I said, well, I just have to do it. And I did. And again, in retrospect, that seemed like, uh, if I can say such a thing, God pointing his finger at me and smiling and say, well, now we'll see what kind of agnostic you really are. And that was like an opening, because I felt like after that I wasn't an agnostic anymore. So uh, that's uh, a lot of my story of being here in Arkansas, and that wouldn't have happened somewhere else. Somewhere else there would have been plenty of people who could uh, read from and say for Torah, and they wouldn't need me, but here I was really needed. You, you stepped up to the plate, so to speak. I did, yes. And it transformed yes. you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, God calls us and... As you said, pokes the fingers and says, what are you going to do about this? And, yes, exactly. And we either step exactly. up to the plate or we fail, you know, and he may, might call again. It's amazing. Uh, how do you see your future directions? Uh, you've, you've done a lot of important work. I mean, you can speak about it if you like. I know that you have. We've been working together on the project as well. Um, where to next? What's next? What's next is a little bit... Uh, Ultimately, uh, Arkansas has been a very important place to me, but uh, it is hard uh, trying to live Jewish life uh, so far from the centers of Judaism. So, uh, for example, the nearest store that sells kosher meat is 100 miles away. And, of course, I don't drive the 100 miles. I go 25 miles to the Chabad rabbi, and, and he gets it for us. But uh, still, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and so I'm really hoping to be in a more Jewish place. Uh, but how that's going to happen and where it's going to happen, I don't know. So. Um, well, let's let me make a plug uh, because I, I really hope you succeed soon. Uh, you you wonderful man, a great scholar, and wonderful family. Your kids deserve it. If any of the listeners out there can help out. Please just contact me or contact the Professor Adler, Jacob Adler, University of uh, Arkansas. Well, I, I want to thank you. I mean, I I know you even better now, <laughs> and and I appreciate that a lot. Um, a lot of things you've said uh, are something to think about, um, and uh, all I can say is that I, I sincerely hope and pray and wish that you succeed in this, and I also appreciate what you have already done. I think we lost contact again, but we're at the end of the conversation, so I'll, I'll thank myself on behalf of Dr. Adler. I think our line went dead right now, but... Um, I do very much appreciate uh, that he was able to speak to us. Thank you, Professor Adler.